We are continuing in a series that we're calling Road to the Cross. And what we're doing in this series is we're really just looking at the last you know, events in the life of Jesus, right before he was crucified on the cross, leading up to his resurrection on that Easter Sunday. And let me give you a little bit of context for where we're going to go today. You know, Jesus was involved in ministry for, for three years, uh, public ministry. He went all over Israel preaching and teaching and casting out demons and healing the sick and calling people to put their faith in him, to trust in him. He also spent time equipping his followers to take over the ministry when, when he departed from them, particularly the 12 uh, disciples who he challenged, you know, to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know that the gospel writers spend the bulk of their time highlighting the very last week of Jesus' life. So we call it Holy Week. We call it Passion Week. And we're moving towards that, even, even right as a church. We're preparing ourselves for really the greatest week in human history. And just kind of to remind you about Holy Week, on Monday of that week, Jesus uh, entered the city of Jerusalem, which is normally referred to as, you know, the triumphal entry. He entered on, on a donkey uh, in front of probably 250,000 people yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And uh, from there, he, you know, the next day, Tuesday, he enters Jerusalem again. This time, a little quieter, he goes uh, straight to the temple and he cleanses the temple from the corruption that had characterized that for, for so long. He does some teaching on Tuesday. He does some more teaching again on Wednesday. This time he takes the disciples up to the Mount of Olives and he starts laying out uh, his glorious return. And so they are, you know, trying to keep up with him. They don't understand half of what he's saying, basically, but he's still laying it out in front of them, trusting that they will get it in time. Thursday is a quieter day for Jesus uh, they spend that day preparing for the Passover meal, which is going to be Thursday night. And so Jesus shares the Passover meal with his disciples, and it's Thursday night that he institutes the Lord's Supper. So right after the Lord's Supper, he slips quietly kind of out. He heads to the Garden of Gethsemane, which that was a, a, a place where he uh, spent a lot of time, but this night he's spending some time in prayer. And shortly after midnight, Judas betrays him. Judas leads a group of about a thousand men, uh, Roman soldiers, Jewish uh, temple police, Jewish religious officials, a group of a thousand men to take Jesus down that night. And they arrest him right after midnight. And immediately they take him to the house of Annas, who is the kind of the retired Jewish high priest in Jerusalem. He's kind of the big dog. And he is charged with coming up with a charge against Jesus that will actually stick. And uh, so he, so Annas sees Jesus. He sends, he sends Jesus kind of across the courtyard to his son-in-law's house, who is Caiaphas, who is the current high priest in the city of Jerusalem. And Caiaphas convenes the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is really the Jewish Supreme Court. So there are about 70 men that serve on this Jewish Supreme Court. So it's about 1.30 in the morning, they begin to interrogate Jesus for a couple of hours under the cover of darkness, which was absolutely illegal, but they do it anyway. And they, they come up with a charge against Jesus of blasphemy. They bring in witnesses, 
the witnesses can't even tell, you know, a, a parallel story. All of their testimony contradicts one another. So they, they don't even have a case. Uh, they don't even have evidence. But they convict Jesus of blasphemy. They basically say that, you know, that he claims to be the son of God when he's not. That he claims to be the Messiah when he's not. And so they, they, they bring this conviction to him. But they, the problem is they can't, they're not really allowed to do this under the cover of darkness, so they have to wait until dawn. They can only do it during daylight hours. So they hold Jesus as a prisoner for, you know, probably 3 o'clock to, you know, just before 6 a.m. in the morning. And they, 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 they abuse him. They, they spit on him. They mock him. They heap all kinds of scorn on him uh, for, that, for that time. And finally, they... You know, they kind of restart up the trial again and they arrive at the, the, you know, the conclusion that they've already established, you know, in the wee hours of the morning. The other problem that they have is they can't execute Jesus because the Roman authorities did, took, that, took that power away from them. So they know that they've got to get Jesus to Pilate. And it's their, it's their agenda to get Pilate to do their bidding. To kill Jesus for them. So, so that's what they do. They, they bring him from you know, his latest trial with the Sanhedrin. They take him straight to Pilate. And that really begins to set up what we're going to read today. Because we, what we're going to look at today is the trial of Jesus today. And so what I'm going to invite you to do, we're going to read this passage. We're going to read Luke 23, the first 25 verses of chapter 23. And, and just out of reverence for the word of God, I want to invite you to stand if you're willing enable this morning. And so this is Luke's account of Jesus' trial. Then the whole company of them, that's the Sanhedrin, arose and they brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, the king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, you have said so. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked the, whether the man was a Galilean. And when he, had heard, when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priest and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you, you brought this man as one who'd been misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I, I did not find this man guilty of any of the charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. 
But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them at once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I, found, I, have, I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they'd asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. You know, this is interesting. You see from Luke's account from the end of chapter 22 through the middle of 23, you see that Jesus is on trial in three different, three different ways. He's in, been in front of the Sanhedrin. Uh, he goes before Pilate. He goes before Herod. And then he goes before Pilate again. And, you know, as I was thinking about this passage, for the, really for the last couple of weeks, I was thinking, you know, even the trial of Jesus reveals the grace of Jesus, doesn't it? Like just the, tr- the process of going before judges and tribunals, basically, even that process God reveals his love for us. Isn't that amazing? Let me show you three ways that the trial of Jesus does it. I I think it does it, first of all, by, by showing us a great disparity. A great disparity. You know what a disparity is? It's it's, it's, a, it's kind of a difference between two things. Let me, let, let me kind of explain what I'm talking about. Go back and look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 23. Let me show you this. Because Luke writes this. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And saying that he himself is Christ. And you're like, what in the world is going on here? If you notice, in front of the Sanhedrin, you know, they came up with the, with the charge of blasphemy. They, they came up with the charge that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah when he's not. The problem with that is that's not going to work in front of Pilate. Pilate doesn't care about blasphemy. Pilate is a, he's a pagan polytheist. I mean, he believes in many gods, and uh, he doesn't really care. Pilate only cares about maintaining the status quo. That's all he cares about. And so the, the Jewish religious leaders know this, and they know that they have to come up with a charge against Jesus that will stick. They've got to come up with a charge that will pique the interest of Pilate. And so they, they come up with this charge. They bring Jesus to Pilate and they accuse Jesus of telling the people not to pay their taxes, to not follow Caesar, not follow Pilate, but to follow him. That's what they come up with. Now, you guys, this is the height of hypocrisy because the Jewish religious leaders hated Rome. They had no interest in paying any tax to Rome if they could help it. They hated Pilate, they hated Caesar, they hated the Romans. So they're not interested in the health of the Roman Empire. And, and, and Pilate knows this. He knows, you know, they hate him. 
And, uh, but, they all, but Pilate also knows they are really threatened by Jesus. Now, you guys have heard of fake news, right? What this is, this is fake justice. This is sham justice. Because the other thing that we know is Jesus taught the crowds regularly to pay their taxes, to be good citizens, and to follow the law of the land. Jesus was a model citizen. But they had to come up with something that will, that will help them achieve their goal of killing Jesus. So Pilate understands the dynamics. So Pilate starts questioning Jesus. And you can look at verse 3, and he asks him a question. He asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, when you and I read that, we're, you know, a lot of times we're, we're tempted to think, okay, he's asking him, you know, are you bringing salvation to the people? Are you bringing forgiveness of sins to the people? And that's not what Pilate is asking. Again, Pilate's not interested in that. Pilate, in asking, are you the king of the Jews? He's asking a political question. He wants to know, Jesus, what are your politics? It would be like him asking, are you Republican or are you Democrat? That's what he's asking. He wants to know, does Jesus have political goals in mind? And that's, that's really at the heart of what he wants to find out. Now, it's fascinating and also frustrating at the same time because of how Jesus responds to the question. Look at, look at it again. Verse 3, you know, he, he basically says, you know, you know, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Now, what do you notice about that? What do you notice about the response of Jesus? It's, it's pretty vague, isn't it? Like, it's pretty ambiguous. You have said so. Jesus doesn't give him an, a yes answer, and he doesn't give him a no answer. You notice that? I mean, it's, it's, he's just kind of right in the middle. I mean, I'm reading this, and I'm like, Jesus, you need to lay it on him, man. You need to tell him who you really are, call him to believe in you. You, know, you need to do all of this stuff. But Jesus doesn't do that. He's so ambiguous about this. It's actually the perfect answer. You know, it's, one commentator said that it's not, it's not even really a fair question. Because no matter how Jesus answers it, it's going to be misunderstood. So if Jesus said, well, yeah, I'm the king of the Jews, then, then you know, Pilate would have understood him to say, I'm raising up an army right now, and we're going we're gonna to kick you out of office. That's what Pilate would have heard. And at that point, it would have been Pilate's job to crush the rebellion and to, to kill Jesus at that moment. But it wouldn't be accurate. If Jesus says, no, I'm not really the king of the Jews, I'm just kind of a spiritual king, it would be the same thing as Jesus saying, you know, I don't really have authority over these other areas, you know, like politics and, you know, leading, leading a nation of people. I don't have authority in that area. I'm just a spiritual king. I'm just here to bring peace and happiness and harmony to anybody who will believe. I'm just a spiritual king. That wouldn't have been accurate either. So what Jesus does is he gives this ambiguous answer, which is an accurate answer, you have said so. But I think he does it for a particular reason. I think he wants to show you and me something. And that's, that's what I want us to highlight. I think what we, what we really begin to see here is the disparity that, I, that, I, that really comes out um, in, in Jesus' response. Let me, let me kind of explain what I mean. I think Jesus wants to show us the difference between human political power and God's power. You know, as, you're, as, you're, as you think about the trial of Jesus, there's a, 
in this passage, there's a huge difference between, you know, Pilate and Herod and the power of the Sanhedrin and then the power of God in Jesus. There's a huge disparity between that. And I think what Jesus wants to do is bring this disparity to light so that you and I can see it. You're like, well, what do you mean? Well, let me explain it this way. How would you describe human political power? How would you describe it? I love how Tim Keller describes it. He talks about two ways that you can describe uh, human political power. He says one way to describe it would be, you know, using the words like control and coercion. You know, that, that really the essence of political power is to control people. So the essence of, you know, political power is to, you know, pass laws to get people to do what you want them to do to control them. And then if they don't do that, then you punish them. That's the essence of political power. And it's fascinating to me because as much as, you know, as society has evolved over, you know, five, 6,000 years, whatever, uh, as much as we've changed, we've really stayed the same, haven't we? Because, you know, you look at a country like in South America, like Venezuela, the president, Nicolas Maduro, I don't know if you know what's going on in Venezuela right now, uh, but that country is imploding from within. This president, Maduro, has ruined his nation. The economy has collapsed. There's, there are no jobs. There's no food. People are starving in the streets. And then you have most of the world's leaders calling on him to resign, and he's not going to do it. So there's, there's warfare. There's anarchy. They're starving in the streets. They're trying to get aid in there. But he will not let go. He will not release control. And, and so as much as things change, they really stay the same, don't they? That's human political power, and it's hurting a lot of people. The other thing that Tim Keller says that really characterizes political power is, is self-promotion. Have you noticed that? Self-exaltation. It's really just kind of glorifying yourself and telling the crowds you're their hope for peace and prosperity. And uh, I don't know if you realize this, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but um, we're going to be for the next year and a half in, in an election cycle. Are you so excited about that? Um, and I mean, and I, I mean, this is going to be the most vicious, yeah, that we've ever seen. I mean, make no mistake about it. We're getting ready to go into this. And why? It's going to be all about control and self-promotion, isn't it? Vote for me, I will meet all of your needs. Vote for me, I'll bring you happiness and peace and prosperity. I can do it. And, and, and really behind it is, I will do whatever it takes. I will bribe, I will lie, I will cheat, I will steal to get you to believe in me so that you will elect me. Because all that matters from a human political point of view is the last man standing wins. And that's what we're getting into. All right, so you've got that working here. That hasn't changed in 2,000 years. But then you've got Jesus. You've got man's power, political power. Then you've got, you've got the power of God. And, and Jesus is on trial. And he's not trying to coerce or control anything. He's not. You know, when they brought criminals before Herod and Pilate, do you know how those criminals would respond to being on trial before Herod and Pilate? Can you imagine? They screamed, they yelled, they lied, they promised, they justified, they defended themselves. They did every, they said every, anything they could say to get off. And here Jesus is 
silent. Luke tells us he doesn't say anything to Herod, doesn't even respond to his interrogation. He says very little to Pilate. Jesus, in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, quiet before his accusers. Isn't that amazing? That would have been, that would have been interesting to see. You know, it enraged Herod, which is why Luke records Herod had so much contempt for Jesus, but it absolutely scared Pilate to death because he'd never seen anybody react, you know, to his power in that way. Not only does Jesus really not seeking to control the situation, Jesus is not self-promoting. What does Jesus do? What we see Jesus do is humbling himself you know, lowering himself to us, submitting to this sham of a trial, going through all of this. And church, I think, I think that's instructive. I think what we see here is the difference between human political power and God's power is this. Real power is not controlling and coercing people. That's not real power. Real power is changing them from the inside out. That's the power of Jesus. That's why Jesus says, when my name is lifted up, I will draw all men and all women unto me. Why? Because men and women are drawn to him because being in the presence of Jesus changes your life and it changes you from the inside. Only the power of God can do that. Politics will never do that. And so what you see Jesus is laying down his preferences, you know, his desires, his comfort for the glory of God and for your, your benefit and mine. That's, that's real power. You see Jesus laying down his life for you and for me so that we could walk in a relationship with him. That's real power. That's transforming power. And so they put a bag over Jesus' head and they strike him, you know, they strike him with their fists and they, they basically say to him, show us your power, prophesy, tell us who hit you, keep us from hitting you. And Jesus is silent. And Jesus is on the cross and, you know, the crowds of people are walking by the, the cross and they, they, they yell cuss words at Jesus. They, they, they're cursing Jesus and just mocking him. They're, they say to Jesus as he's hanging on the cross, you said you had the power to save others, but you can't even save yourself. And what they didn't even realize is this fact. You know, human political power says that the way that you can save others is by saving yourself. That's what human power says. Save others by saving yourself. Well, while they're heaping insults at Jesus and crucifying him and nailing him to a cross, what they didn't realize is he was saving them precisely because he was not saving himself. If he saves himself, church, he can't save us. If he saves us, he can't save himself. That's power. It's coming to the place of saying, I'm releasing you know, my hopes and my dreams and my desires for the glory of God and for the blessing and the benefit of everyone else. That's real power. Now let's, let's just apply it. There are a lot of different ways, you could, a lot of different directions you could go with this, but let me, let me just do it this way. I think a lot of times, especially for Christians in America, um, I, I think one application would be that I think there's a tendency that we have, generally speaking, to put our trust in a political candidate, to put our trust in a political party, 
And we don't realize what we're doing is we're really seeking a measure of control, aren't we? And what I want to encourage you to do is put your trust in Jesus Christ. Because human political power is just temporary. It doesn't last. But God's power is the power to change us from the inside. And I'll just tell you at the end of time, there's only one candidate going to be standing. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His name is Jesus. And if you put your trust in him, you will be standing with him in the glory of God. So I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying, you know, not to be politically active. I'm not saying that at all. Just don't let that be your salvation. Because it's not going to last. Everybody get that? All right, now you're all ready for the election cycle. How about that? All right, so that's the disparity. That's the disparity that we see. But you know what? There's a greater irony here. I mean, you look at this passage of Scripture, there's this tremendous irony running right down in the middle of this. And you're like, what do you mean? Well, look at verse 1, and you know, notice what Luke tells us. It's, it's kind of a, just a simple observation here. Um, but Luke tells us, you know, the whole company of them, the Sanhedrin, all 70 men plus Caiaphas and Annas, uh, they brought him before Pilate. Now, th- this is just an interesting, you know, kind of thought on this. But the thing that I really want you to see is Pilate, Pilate was enamored with his position and his own political power. The only person that Pilate answered to was Caesar in Rome. Pilate was the big dog. He's the big cheese. He's in charge. He's the most powerful man in all, not, not only just Israel, but in all of the Middle East. He's a powerful dude. And, and Pilate, ha- he's under the illusion that he's going to have a say in the destiny of Jesus. Like he's got a piece of, he's got a piece of the pie. He gets to decide the fate of Jesus. He's under this kind of illusion. And you know, Jesus corrects him on that. Because Pilate looks at Jesus, and John 19 tells us this because uh, John gives us a little bit more information on the exchange between Pilate and Jesus. And so what we get is we get Pilate saying to Jesus, don't you understand, I have the power to crucify you. All I have to do is say the word, and you're dead. And Jesus doesn't even flinch. Jesus looks back at him and says, the only power you have is the power given you from above. In essence, in essence, what Jesus is saying, you don't control my destiny. God the Father does. You see that? And all throughout the story of the road to the cross for Jesus is really a list of tragic characters who think that they've got that same chip in the game, that same, you know, power to determine what happens to Jesus. And that's why Judas betrayed him. You know, uh, he was, obviously he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. But a lot of commentators think, now this is just a theory, this is speculation. But they, a, lot of, a lot of people think Judas had political aspirations. He wanted to see the Romans kicked out. And he was, he was frustrated with how long it was taking Jesus to get to this. And, and so he really kind of forced the issue because he wanted political power. He wanted a seat at the governing table while the Romans got humiliated. And he thought Jesus was his man. 
And by the way, he could make a little bit of money under the table on the side. So money under the table in politics, that goes hand in hand. Am I right on that? And so Judas betrays him. And he thinks he's got a, a stake in the destiny of Jesus. Nope. Caiaphas thinks that as well. You know, Caiaphas thinks that, you know, as the high priest, he, he reads Jesus clearly. He knows that Jesus is the end of Judaism. He's the end. He knows that. He knows that his power and his position are threatened because of Jesus and Jesus must go. And he thinks he has a stake in the destiny of Jesus. And then obviously, Herod and Pilate, two very powerful paranoid rulers think they've got a chip in this game as well and they really don't do you know who decides the destiny of jesus god the father that's right so if you don't get anything else i say you need to get this jesus didn't fall into a trap of injustice one morning jesus didn't wake up and had a really bad day right like just perfect storm that didn't happen Jesus wasn't just all of the blue, just picked off by Satan. Oh, they got a good one that time, you know. Man, you know, why did that have to happen? The Bible says this, that from the foundation of the world, Jesus would be on the road to the cross, that he was slain from the foundation of the world for you and for me, and that is God's love for you and me. Do you see that? So the, the irony of this is this, and it's it's is really pretty simple. The irony of this is that Pilate and Herod thought they, you know, stood in judgment of Jesus. They thought they were judging Jesus, when in reality, they were being judged by Jesus. They thought they were sealing his fate, when in reality, they were sealing their own fate. And what we read is, what we read is, you know, God didn't send Jesus to condemn the world. He, he sent Jesus to save the world. But, but the only way we can be saved is by believing in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, then you escape that judgment. But if you refuse to believe in Jesus, the judgment, you're, in, in fact, Jesus says this, you're already judged. And you push back and you say, but Scott, I'm a good person. I do a lot of good things. Being a good person doesn't get you into heaven. Being a good person doesn't cause you to escape judgment. Faith in Jesus leads you out of judgment. And so that's the irony of this. I mean, Jesus is treated like a criminal, but he's the judge. And Herod and Pilate are treated like judges, but they're the criminals. That's the irony of this thing. Well, there's one more. So there's a disparity, there's an irony. And uh, this, is, this is amazing. There's a graceful absurdity in, in the middle of all of this. A graceful absurdity. Um, you're like, what is that? Well, Pilate is feeling uneasy about this whole situation. And so he should. Uh, he doesn't want to crucify Jesus. That's not, he, he's just got a bad feeling about this. And so he's trying to find a way out. He doesn't want to do the, the bidding of the Jewish religious leaders. So he's trying to connive for a way out. And he remembers all of a sudden, oh yeah, you know, every Passover, uh, the Romans, out of goodwill to the Jewish people, release a political prisoner. Just to kind of smooth things over. 
And Pilate remembers they have a prisoner in custody. His name is Barabbas. And it's interesting because Barabbas is a political revolutionary. In fact, Barabbas has committed murder. They got him dead to rights. No sham trial there. No fake justice there. I mean, they got their guy. And he's sentenced to be crucified. So Pilate comes up with this idea. I know what I'll do. We need to release a prisoner. I'll just let the crowds decide it. And I know how much the crowds love Jesus. They will certainly ask for Jesus' release. So he puts them out there. He puts Barabbas out on his left, Jesus on his right. He asks thousands of people, who do you want me to release to you? In the most stunning turn of events in human history, the crowd in unison says, give us Barabbas. Release him to us so that Jesus can be crucified. It's unbelievable. Now, just think about Barabbas over here. Like He's right here, and he's seeing all this go down. His eyes are like, what in the world is going on here? Because he realizes he's going to walk. He's going to go free. And that man over there, that very quiet and majestic man, he's going down. And he and Barabbas is going free. Do you ever wonder why they include Barabbas in the story? Why is that detail so important? I have a hunch. I would say... Barabbas is in this story because Barabbas is you and me. We're the guilty ones. We're the ones who deserve to be crucified. We're the ones who are actually guilty. Jesus is going to be punished for, you know, how Barabbas broke the law. He's the political insurrectionist, not Jesus. But Jesus is going to take the rap for it. And so the whole reason why Barabbas is in this story is because he's you and me. And what you see is, the, is the, a beautiful picture of the gospel that, that here you have Barabbas who's guilty. Jesus is innocent, but Jesus is crucified in his place. In your place. And in my place. Jesus takes the rap. Our law-breaking and our rebellion and insurrection. Our sin goes to Jesus. His righteousness goes to us. Jesus goes to the cross. And we're saved by grace through faith. That to me is an amazing absurdity. That to me is how much God loves you. That's it. You and I had a problem that God took care of. It was so big, it was so huge, no one else could take care of this problem except for Jesus. We were so blind and so selfish and so arrogant, we didn't even know we had a problem. But God demonstrates his love for us while we were still sinners. Jesus died for us. That's, that's absurd. That is amazing. That is how much God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit loves you and me. Isn't that amazing? Let's apply it. Think about the problem you're facing right now. It's probably a big one. 
it's no bigger than that one. And if God can handle the big one, he can handle the ones you're facing right now. You just need to trust him. He's with you. He loves you. It could be another way, kind of thinking about applying this, is you're sitting there and you, you come every Sunday and you hear us preach and, and you've never really taken that step. You've never really just said, I want to be a Christian. You need to take that step. Herod and Pilate refused. But you don't have to. You can say yes to Jesus today. And you just call out to him and say, Jesus, I want to be a child of God. I want to be saved. I want, my, I, I want you to forgive me of my sins. I want you to put your spirit in me and I want to live a new life. And you know what? God will answer that prayer every time. But you have to believe. And I just wonder if there's some of us here today that need to take that step. It's not about whether you're a good person or not. It's just a matter of, do you have faith that Jesus took your place? It's just that simple. And if you're willing to put your faith in Jesus, he will save you. So let me just pray for us. Will you, will you bow your heads and your hearts as we pray? As I mentioned, I... I I just think that there are some here that, that are not sure and they want to be sure of their faith. There are those here that, that want to be, they're just crying out. I wanna be a daughter of God. I wanna be a child of God. I wanna be a son of God. And if that's your heart today, I just, I want you to, I wanna lead you in a prayer and uh, there's nothing special about my prayer. Uh, God always hears the, the heart cry. And that's what we're going to do. We're just going to cry out to God. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord, the Bible says, you will be saved. So I just want to lead you in that. And um, I'll pray a prayer. You just repeat it silently in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner in need of your grace. Thank you for taking my place on the cross. Forgive me of my sin. Put your spirit in me so that I can follow you as a disciple of Jesus and be a child of God. God, I thank you for every person who's prayed that prayer. Lord, you know who they are. You know where they are. You love them just as they are. And we are amazed at your grace. I thank you for every person in this room. I just ask that your Holy Spirit would work and confirm the grace that you've poured out today. Thank you for what this season of the year means to us. Thank you what happened 2,000 years ago. Thank you that you have the power to change a heart. And it's lasting and eternal. We give you praise and we give you glory for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.